Hey, welcome back to the show, everybody, or welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for checking in. Thanks for hitting that little arrow cloud thing that downloads the podcast if you're on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are, wherever you've selected this particular episode, or if you've decided, hey, let me give this a listen. Thanks for stopping by, neighbor. Get a little Mr. Rogers in here. Thanks for coming by, everybody. Hope you're all doing well out there. And uh, yeah, if you've uh, stumbled upon this episode or if you decided, hey, let me give that Mike Adelic guy a listen, please listen away. And uh, if you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. They help a lot. And uh, yeah, th- I think a lot of people have been leaving uh, some some really great uh, reviews. I mean, I know a lot of people have been leaving great reviews because I've seen them come in. So I don't know why I said I think. Maybe pro- probably because I'm an idiot sometimes. But <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you to everybody that does that. It means a lot to me. And uh, because of that, Mike Adelic has shot up in the rankings on Apple Podcasts. So I just checked uh, the philosophy category, um, which the show is in. I think it's. I think my show is labeled in society and culture, philosophy, and then I don't know bullshit is the third category but uh i checked uh, it's like number 31 so that's pretty that's pretty good i'll take it i like that that's that's good so thanks to everybody we got a great episode today with david krantz david krantz is a uh really awesome awesome human being uh talks with david about um a lot of different things but david is a certified epigenetic coach an expert in nutritional genomics and uh, we talk about cannabis and the cannabinoid system. Um, we talk about genetics and environment, nature, nurture, these sorts of things. Uh, what plays into that? We've been talking about that kind of a lot. I mean, it really, it, when you break it down, it, pretty much almost everything has to do with, with that. Uh, David's a really fascinating guy. He's an artist. He's a musician. Uh, he was recently nominated. Um, as a 2019 top 100 healthcare innovator by uh, inter- the International Forum for Advancements in Healthcare, he has developed proprietary genetic tests for endocannabinoid uh, for the and the endocannabinoid system. I almost said for endocannabinoid systems, but I think it's just with humans. I don't know. I don't know if he's developed anything for like beavers or uh, elk. But, you know, <laughs> he developed proprietary gen- genetic uh, tests for the, the endocannabinoid system and has spoken at conferences like Biohacking Con, and he's been on a lot of different podcasts, people who've been on this show, my friends over at Psychedelics Today, uh, uh, Third Eye Drops, uh, other places. Um, and he's currently an advisor to AMMA Healing as a specialist on the genetics of the endocannabinoid system. He's also currently serving as the Director of Applied Psychoacoustics at Aperion, at the Aperion Center. Uh, I hope I got that right. I apologize if I, if I didn't. Um, but yeah, we talk, he's, as a musician, uh, he does a lot of uh, interesting work with sound um, and uh, just overall really fascinating person. Uh, David Krantz has something to tell you for sure. We get into this conversation about optimal health, um, epigenetics, biohacking, the cannabinoid system, cannabis, music, art, and more. Let's get in this conversation with David Krantz. 
Before we do, if you like the show, please share it, subscribe, tell people about it, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And uh, if you really want to go a step further, go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank, and you can donate a dollar, two, three, four million, whatever you want. Uh, I'm going to start doing more stuff with that. We got the Mikeadelic Inner Sanctum WhatsApp chat group available to all patrons, stickers, t-shirts, all kinds of fun things. So thank you so much to everybody for listening and being a part of this. Let's get in this conversation with David Krantz. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Uh, having me, it's uh, it's always nice to be the delicate part of something. Yeah, that, that well, yeah, the, you're the the, the, the manifesting. There yeah. you go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, that's yeah. That, that's a good jump off point. Um, so, yeah, I think you you sent me an email, and uh, I, I got to take a. I took like a brief look into what you're doing, but it looks so. Uh, vast uh, that looks like you're in such so many different kinds of areas too. I think you you mentioned on your website you're a, a musician, and then you kind of got into working with um, trying to figure out how to kind of get better a better handle on like what the kind of fast pace and, and things like that. Is is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I had some health issues that I kind of had to figure out on my own, and that right. launched me into the biohacking and optimal health kind of world and. Um, Kind of shifted a lot of my focus into that field, um, but yeah, that, that's pretty much accurate there. Yeah, so I guess um, we could start there. Like, walk me through that. So you're you're touring as a musician, and and then you encountered some health problems. Um, what what were what was that like? Yeah, so I started having um, just kind of just random episodes of passing out, which was really scary. You know, like I. It was there wasn't anything that was triggering it, and it was and I you know I went and saw a cardiologist. Um, basically, nothing really seriously wrong with my heart, um, but I kind of later figured out that it was because of a lot of stress, um, and I was just having nervous system dysfunction, and I wasn't thinking about taking care of my body at all. You know, I've always typically been someone who's more in my head than in my body. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah right, and, and just kind of had that more. Uh, mental focus and really hadn't taken into account the way that my body was affecting my mind and, and vice versa. And 
you know, it, it took me a while to kind of get that under control. And, you know, there were some other factors involved. Like I was in a really stressful creative partnership that um, in retrospect, I should have seen some red flag warning signs that I just didn't, I didn't have that experience at the time. And between that and like staying up super late to, you know, play gigs, getting home at like three in the morning and then traveling and, and all that, I was just putting my body through like some pretty difficult stress. And, you know, as I saw the results from it, and I, uh, I ended up getting really into all of the health information that was out there and just, just to kind of fix my body and get myself back into a place where I could like, function normally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I started uh, like any, any responsible um, citizen would do and listen to a ton of podcasts. <laughs> and uh, oh, nice. yeah, yeah. So and I was I was working at a, um, a synthesizer factory here in town, Bogue. And um, I was listening to all these podcasts. And I realized one day that the logo of my favorite podcast that I had kind of just discovered was actually on the building next door, and realized that there was this doctor who um, had this podcast. It was amazing. It was all about, you know, individualized precision medicine and, and genetics. Um, he had an office next door. Which, which one? Uh, it was called biohacking for optimal health. He, he, he switched the name of it. He's not doing it anymore. He's more focused on some other adventures, oh. but you can go back, okay. back and listen to all the backlog episodes of it. It's, it's great. Um, but, uh, you know, I just, I booked an appointment with him. Uh, I wanted to do some blood work. And it turned out that they were actually looking for someone to develop some audio programs for them. They were, they had built this kind of experimental sound chamber device in this building. His, his wife was an audiologist and peak performance specialist for the air force. And so I was like, yeah, that's, um, I will do everything in my power to come help you with this. So I quit my other job, started working with them. And shortly after that, this doctor started a training program for genetics and epigenetics and kind of, um, personalized nutrition. Um, and he kind of tagged me as someone that he wanted to go through the program. And I was kind of skeptical, you know, thinking like, Oh, what I'm, I just can barely, I just barely got myself back to functioning normally. Like I, what I'm going to help other people now. And sure enough, like, you know, I, I listened to him and, and went through the training program. I kind of beta tested it for him. So I went through it like three times before we made it public. Um, and uh, that's kind of how I, where I got to where I am now doing um, epigenetic coaching work with people and helping people understand how their bodies are wired and, um, you know, kind of taking people through similar paths to better health that I went through myself. Um, so kind of, you know, a lot of synchronicities there, but that's how I got here. Yeah. And, um, that's, you know, traditionally sort of how a shaman comes into being, you know, it's, uh, they go through this kind of difficult, challenging ordeal. Usually they're sick and or ill or going through maybe some kind of psychological transition and then work their, their, their way out of that and then offer something back to the people. So, you know, in a sense, I guess you're sort of a modern Western version of that uh, to to a certain degree. Um, you mentioned uh, the epigenetics, and I'm wondering if if we can get into that a little bit because I kind of familiar in, in in what that means. But for my audience, maybe uh, uh, to my understanding, it's it's the study of of basically uh, genes that that are passed down through maybe your ancestry. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So that that's one. Um portion of it. Uh, just to kind of back up and give you the, the, um, the bird's eye view of it, it's really the study of how genes 
change their expression. And so that can be something that's inherited from, you know, your parents or grandparents, uh, but can also be something that actually changes throughout your lifetime. And even down to the scale of a day, like um, a lot of what we think about, like, um, you know, you going to sleep at night and being able to produce certain hormones that you just want to secrete at night, like melatonin that help you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, those are controlled by an epigenetic process. And what it would like the actual word means control above genes. So, you know, we have about 99.9% of the exact same DNA, you and I, um, that's that 1% that, you know, or 0.1% that makes us, you know, different to some degree, um, mm-hmm. you know, why you have a certain hair color, why I have a certain eye color, etc. cetera. Um, but these things also impact all these little tiny neurochemical biological processes that go on in our body, all the metabolism and everything like that. Um, but you know, if you think about the reason why you're able to, you know, say you're living in a super cold environment and then you go on vacation uh, to somewhere that is tropical, like your body can adapt to it. It's not just going to like shrivel up and die because, you know, you're in a different environment. Uh, humans are really adaptable. And so these epigenetic changes happen in response to all these different things. And these basically, uh, you know, on a technical level are... Um, you know, kind of these little tags, these little chemical tags that get kind of put onto genes and uh, tell the RNA when you're transcribing a protein, um, you know, er- everything in your body is made out of protein. So your DNA kind of holds that code, uh, but you can change the type of proteins that are being made. It's like if you had a recipe and then uh, you decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to put a little bit more salt in today because uh, I know that the people that are going to eat this food like a little more salt. It's, you know, that's the environmental kind of response. It's like your body's able to adapt to all these things. Um, and yeah. so it's this process of, you know, how we're able to show up in all these different environments and respond to different situations and um, kind of have this dynamically changing uh, chemistry in our body. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it, what, it, what makes us flexible. Um, because if we were only able to just produce like one protein per gene, um, it w- we would not really be a species that's been able to colonize the whole globe and do all these amazing, amazing things. So um, epigenetic changes can happen from, you know, the food that you eat, the air that you're breathing, toxins that you're taking in your body, exercise that you do, uh, meditation, like meditation has been shown to change like two to 3,000 different genes in your body. Um, mm. pretty profound. Um, yeah. and you know, some of those genes are being turned up, some of them are being turned down. Um, and so epigenetic changes, you know, they're, they're neutral, but they can have positive or negative consequences on your health. Kind of, you know, if you're smoking, that's going to cause some negative epigenetic changes and cause more inflammation. If you're meditating and exercising, it's going to cause some positive genes to get expressed. Um, but yeah, like you said, these are also things that can be passed down from, your ancestry um, because you're what they found in, you know, in, in the rat studies, like I've got a lot of issues with rodent studies for some things in science, but when you're looking at like how generations, you know, pass things along, it's a great way to look and see how, how in a short time period, like um, you know, how that happens. And so what they, they found is that these little marks in certain cases can actually get transmitted from um, you know, parent to children to grandchildren. And there's a lot of really good studies now in humans too that um, show, you know, um, 
grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have um, exaggerated st- stress response, um, which actually my, I believe partially explains some of the stuff that I was describing earlier. My, my grandparents on my mom's side were both in the Holocaust, grandfathers in concentration camps. And so I think that I was actually kind of brought into this world with a heightened stress response from trauma. And I think a lot of people are right now. I think a lot of what we're seeing in the world right now is a sort of built up trauma response that we don't necessarily know how to deal with um, because it's not necessarily coming from our own lifetime. But if you think about it, in a logical evolutionary way, um, what our bodies are, are really designed to do is prepare the next generation for whatever the environment is that we're experiencing at the time. So if you, you know, conceive and you're under a lot of stress and pressure, like you're going to select the right sperm and the right egg that are most likely to provide your offspring with uh, you know, a stress response that's suited to that current environment. Or if you are in a famine, like you're going to, you're going to select sperm and egg that is likely to help someone survive in a famine. So like there's actually some studies uh, looking at, and it kind of comes back to World War II. There is this thing called the Dutch hunger famine where all these um, trains got blockaded and there was no ability to get food to a certain region of Holland for this period of time. And they, and they found that um, actually depending on uh, – if a woman was pregnant at that time, depending on what trimester that happened, like whether she was early in her pregnancy or later in her pregnancy, um, that her children and grandchildren would either be predisposed to obesity or have a lower risk of obesity. So it's like it just kind of depends what the environment – you know, an environment is doing at, at that particular time. Um, but it, it's super fascinating and really gives this, this um, multi-generational viewpoint that, I mean, you know, indigenous cultures and, and native cultures have known about and talked about forever, right? Like the seven generations thing. Um, there's really some science that, that backs that up now that what you're doing right now in your lifetime is going to have an impact down the road um, in a whole bunch of different ways. So, um, there you go. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty important stuff. And, and when you think about it, uh, you know, you're doing something pretty unique here. I haven't spoken to anybody, uh, doing what you're doing yet. Uh, you know, and I think that, um, for me, I had some digestive issues and I was like, oh, well, what is this? And I went to a gastroenterologist and, you know, they were like, oh, well maybe, you know, try eating this stuff or that stuff. And they gave me there's something called a FODMAP diet, mm-hmm. uh, some kind of for IBS and things like that. And as I kind of started to follow that, I was also taking some supplements. But really, I'm, it, it's like, you know, kind of just throwing a dart in the dark because you didn't, no one really knew, like no one could really say exactly what to do or what to take. And I was kind of just experimenting with different supplements or different lifestyle choices. And definitely meditation is huge, right? I mean, that's that's so important. You never really hear anybody bashing meditation. There's no like anti-meditation campaigns going on. Thank <laughs> God. It's a, it's very it's super beneficial and exercise too. Like you said, what we're doing is, um, really, so I'll kind of tell you what I, what I know, and then you can kind of elaborate on it, I guess. So you, you, you analyze people's, uh, DNA, they, they send you a sample and you go over that and you're looking for, uh, what exactly when when that happens like that one percent of that epigenetic uh, area to try and diagnose maybe like okay eat more carrots you know go to sleep 
earlier is is that kind of a uh, an idiot's way of explaining what you do <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's 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 pretty close. I'll um, you know kind of explain it uh, a little more in detail. Cool. So uh, yeah, I, I, I do genetic analysis with people, and you know I kind of look at it a little bit as like a three step process, right? So stage one is understanding what hardware you have. Like if you have a Windows machine and you've got a Mac machine, you're not going to load the exact same hardware on it just because it, it's wired differently, um, and so looking at the genetics really gives you this sort of like really baseline understanding of how someone's wired. And what that allows me to do is is compare it to this giant database of studies that have been done on these little individual places in your DNA. So like one letter variation in your DNA, sometimes they don't matter at all. Sometimes they're, you know, they haven't been able to find anything that it's tied to, but sometimes, um, science has been able to find some very significant changes. Um, so say, for example, um, you know, there's, you know, 20 or 30 different, um, they call them polymorphisms, mm-hmm. uh, polymorphisms that have been identified that really change someone's response to saturated fat, you know, like for butter and coconut oil and, and that. And, um, you know, that's why some people do so well with the keto diet. And some people really, you know, gain weight on it and, and are wondering why their friend is doing so well on it, whether they're not. And this happened to me and my wife where I do really well on it. When And when I started it, she started to gain weight. And then it wasn't until we looked at her genes and that it kind of made sense because she's got a lot of those variants that are related to the poor response to saturated fat. So, you know, that's kind of the stage one is, is you, you know, kind of compare what your hardware is like to this whole database of, of studies that are out there. Um, and then stage two is, is kind of um, the epigenetic part where you're figuring out what software you want to load onto the hardware. Uh, and that's what I help people with is really look at, all right, what information it, that can we give your body? Because, um, you know, ultimately it's like food is just information for the body. It's uh, exercise, meditation, all these things. It's just environmental inputs. And if you kind of break it down like that, you can just kind of look at like, all right, what are all the information sources your body's getting and which ones are causing it to, you know, not function as well. And which ones can we kind of shift so that you really are running at optimum speed. Yeah. Um, What about like, um, you know, excessive television watching or different mm -hmm. kinds of maybe like really aggressive music or different kinds of me is it does does that play a part in it too? Or, you know, who knows what like the cell phone uh, signals are doing to us and and stuff? Do you get into any of that? Is that is that does that have any factors? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think that to break that apart, you know, I think there's a couple there's there's at least two or three different factors there. So in terms of, you know, watching lots of movies and looking at your phone all the time, you've got the light aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And light right. is one of the biggest epigenetic modifiers there is. Like our bodies are designed to respond to light. Um, and that's something like I was mentioning earlier, you know, looking at these short cycle epigenetic uh, changes um, happen in these genes called the circadian genes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they basically control all these functions in the body and and they kind of act as like a conductor of a symphony orchestra. And the light is the the signal in a lot of cases to like make sure everything is synchronized together. Because if you go back, you know, 200 years before we had electricity and the entire span of human history before that, um, the sun would be the main light source that we're all exposed to on a daily basis. And then when you look at fire, which was going to be the other main source at night, um, it contains a very, very low percentage of blue 
uh, blue light. Uh, and what we've done right now with all the screens and, and LED lights and fluorescence is we've radically shifted the light spectrum that we're exposed to on a daily basis. Right, um, which alters our circadian rhythm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. It alters our circadian rhythm. Uh, it causes oxidative stress, uh, which is going to cause cell damage uh, in the eye and the, in the part of the eye that transmits those signals to the brain that uh, basically says, hey, it's this time. So you, I think there's a lot of issues right now um, that are being caused by improper light exposure. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Definitely yeah, light light pollution. That's another thing. Like we, you know, everywhere you go, major cities, there's lights on, and you, you can't see the sky, mm-hmm. and that yeah it has all kinds of effects. I lived in the jungle for a little while. I spent six months in Peru, and I found myself like really enjoying it because I felt wow. I mean, uh, you know, my body must love this. My my genes must must love this because when it's nighttime, there's candle lights, but that's pretty much it, and then that goes out, and then you're ready to go to bed. I found myself sleeping more, dreaming more feeling more refreshed when I woke up in the morning. Big game changer. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're in Peru, you're closer to the equator, which is going to pretty significantly change the spectrum of sunlight that you're getting and the amount of UV and IR light. Um, And that's going to cause some changes with your uh, metabolism in general. And, you know, I think that's a big factor too that um, there's not a lot of people looking at, but the few that are are real certain that um, distribution of where you are latitude wise on the planet actually changes some of these dynamics because of the angle of the sun, um, which is some pretty wild stuff, but I think yeah, it's, wow. it's got some weight behind it. Um, where, where well, every, everyone's got to pack up and move. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's more about just, you know, learning how to exist within those environments and what we're doing with, um, EMF and, you know, the signals from your cell phones, like you were mentioning is further, um, messing with people's ability to, uh, utilize sunlight correctly because sunlight is, you know, part of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. Our bodies are basically tuned for that to be the biggest source of EM that we're, we're getting. And, you know, again, we've kind of like in the last 20 years thrown ourselves into this giant worldwide experiment with no control group um, on, you know, just everyone is exposed to this stuff. So um, not great. I'm curious where, uh, where in Peru uh, did you stay for six months? Uh, so just outside of Iquitos in the Amazon jungle. Mm-hmm. I was at a place called the Temple of the Way of Light. Okay. Yeah, I heard of that. Yeah. Sounds like a cult, but it's not. <laughs> someone actually yeah. a- asked me that yesterday they're like sounds like a cult and i, I kind of just went with it i was like yeah i i actually i escaped a cult so you know i'm a survivor and, uh, <laughs> um no they're great great people down there doing doing great work with with ayahuasca you know indigenous shipibo uh shamans and and healers and um yeah that's another uh aspect of what you do too i want to get into you know working with uh cannabis and you know the, the i guess it's been maybe it recently came to my attention maybe i don't know how maybe seven years ago or something where i found out about the endocannabinoid system uh i wonder maybe if you could talk a little bit about that uh the endocannabinoid re- uh, receptors uh the system in our body and and how cannabis plays a role in in your work yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I got into genetics and epigenetics initially more through the nutrition side. Um, but once I realized that there was a, a number of studies out there that have been looking at um, these genes and how they influence people's response to cannabis, uh, it really turned on a light bulb for me because, you know, I've been into weed since I was 14 or 15. Yeah. And I was just always one of those people that, you know, just naturally was drawn to it. 
Um, and I'd had so many experiences throughout my life that I just didn't quite know how to make sense of where, you know, someone would have a really extreme response to weed or, or someone would really not like it. Like I remember my girlfriend in high school, I always wanted her to smoke weed with me and I finally got her to one time and she didn't enjoy it. I just couldn't wrap my head around how that was possible because I had such a good response to it. Um, but then, you know, looking at this information that really lays out some, pretty strong underlying biological reasons why some people just don't have as good a reaction or or some people react more strongly, Um, you know, really kind of rewired my sense of empathy around this um, and sort of being able to put myself in in other people's shoes and and the possibility that, okay, there, you know, this isn't just something in someone's head. This is like a real biological response to THC that's different. Um, and so I've spent uh, the last couple of years really diving into that research that's out there and trying to understand why some people are you know, really drawn to cannabis like I was and, and some people could care less or have negative responses to it and get anxious or paranoid or um, – you know, I've talked to some people, they're like, yeah, I took one hit and I was like tripping for like a day. You know, <laughs> and like that's, that's not the typical response, but it really does happen to some people. Well, that's, so, that's interesting though, yeah. because, you know, in, in talking about epigenetics and how you explained it to me, that, that brings to mind, you know, that, you know, I, I oftentimes talk about how things aren't so black and white. You know, there's a lot of nuance to be discovered here. And, and I think this, uh, you know, from my experience, I have, I love cannabis and I, I smoke it often, but sometimes I'll have experiences where I'll just be like, holy shit, like the FBI is in a van outside and I am going to, they're watching me, you know, I'll get into, I'll be like, oh no, what is going on? And maybe it's a particular strain or maybe it's something that I ate that day. Is that, is that some you know, is there like a correlation between that? Can it kind of vary between where you are in your lifestyle, your diet, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of strain that you're using? Yeah. So I would say that definitely, uh, yes. Um, the strain can make a difference, whatever terpenes are involved, different, uh, array of cannabinoids can affect you differently. Um, there's a lot of research that hasn't been done yet on that. Um, but what's been almost more interesting to me is to find these sort of things that strains don't seem to override, right? Like there's certain people that like, no matter what strain they try, it doesn't matter. They're just not into it. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, that's one area I'm really interested in is, okay, how can we take certain terpenes and shift the experience so that it is smooth every time and understanding, you know, in particular, which ones are you going to react to or what balance of cannabinoids um, is going to set you off like that? And that's really help, helpful to know. Um, yeah. So can- I'm, I'm a- yeah, okay. I, I was just going to say, um, you know, terpenes is also something that's sort of new to me. I think ever since moving to Colorado, I, I, used, to, I used to live in New York and I, I would just, you know, get my procure my cannabis in the way that those do who enjoy that when living in New York. Now I'm in Colorado and it's, uh, you know, it's above ground. So it's it's all legit. You walk into a place and they can tell you about the terpenes. They could tell you about the THC, the CBD, the, the other alkaloids and, you know, in the cannabis strain that you're purchasing. Can you talk a little bit about the, the terpenes and what that what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So these are going to be the uh, molecules in the plant that flavor it basically. And there's, um, you know, well, plants all across the plant kingdom create terpenes, uh, like things that make evergreen tr- trees smell piney or mm. lemons and oranges, like the citrus smell. Um, you know, all of these different herbs and, um, you know, like essential oils are full of terpenes. Uh, right. That's basically what, what they mostly are. And the cannabis plant 
is one of the most talented at uh, creating the kind of whole spectrum of them, which is why you get all the strain names, you know, from Orange Crush to Grape Gorilla or whatever. You know, you get all of the flavors, every every possible right, thing. Right. Um, and you know, the, the terpenes themselves have been shown to have some some different effects, and they can really shift the high. Um, and you know, they have some medicinal value in and of themselves. Um, so. Yeah, and that's really what different strains are, is these different combinations of cannabinoids and terpenes. And even the the distinction between uh, indica and sativa has way more to do with the terpenes than anything. Like um, myrcene is a terpene that's going to be found mostly in indica strains. It's really the thing that creates more of that stony sedative type effect. Um, CBN, the cannabinoid, will also do that too. Um, but C- CBN is more of a... Um, of a product from leaving your weed stored for a long time. It's a, it can, it's, it's not something that's made um, so much in the plant itself, but it's something that happens after the fact. So if you ever have weed that you've been like storing for months and then you try it and it's a little bit different, you feel a little bit more stony. Uh, that's usually the CBN. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had the experience of feeling a little bit more stony from finding, Oh, look at this little nug in there. Where's that uh-huh, from? 2010. Uh-huh. All right. Well, guess might as well light it up. Don't want to let anything go to waste. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and you also mentioned, uh, I think in your email to me, you were mentioning how uh, different genetic variations in MAOI or, um, you know, the, the, you were mentioning about MAOI inhibitors uh, from people using ayahuasca. That th- These can also account for uh, certain kinds of anomalous uh, non-response to, you know, orally ingesting DMT or psilocybin. And, I, and I've definitely had that experience and, and seeing people down in Peru, oh, I didn't feel anything or nothing happened to me. And, you know, someone else like, well, I went to the center of the universe and met God. And, you know, so it's like, what. Is is your work kind of like lean? Are you looking in that direction too now? Now that kind of psychedelics are becoming more mainstream, talked about. You know, we decriminalize mushrooms here in Denver. Uh, so, is that something that you're interested in looking at or have been looking at? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of it is speculative right now. You know, there's there's really no one that I've seen doing um, actual research on it. What I'm doing is extrapolating and saying, all right, so we know that MAO. Um, you know, is responsible for breaking down DMT in the body. And we know from other studies that people can have different levels of MAO depending on different genetic variants. So you put one plus one together and it equals two, and inherently people are going to have different responses to psychedelics that use MAO as a metabolizer if there's different levels in the body. And I mean, like you said, this is what people see in in real life. And, you know, I, I had a client that had a very similar experience to what you're describing. Um, she went to two different ayahuasca ceremonies and didn't feel anything. And um, sure enough, I took a look at her MAO genes and she had a number of different variants in there that were associated with uh, higher MAO levels. So our theory was, well, she's just kind of breaking down the DMT and would need a higher level of uh, Banisteriopsis capi or whatever MAO inhibitor you're using. Right. Um, you know, and and so I, I think that there's uh, there's definitely some room here to look much deeper into this. 
Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's not a one size fits all approach. And I think we, we kind of live in a world that tries to make things like that, but it's, it's way more, uh, varied than just kind of, it's either this way or that way, or, you know, everybody gets the same thing and it should just work. And we, like you mentioned before, we see that with diets too. I mean, I think, uh, you know, for me, definitely losing a little bit of weight has been kind of a goal of mine for a little while. And I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh man, I don't know what's going on here. I'm hitting a wall, trying different things. Uh, do, do you also, uh, I mean, I, I would imagine so that that's probably a big one for people, right? Uh, weight loss or, or fitness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do a lot of work with weight loss, do a lot of work with energy levels with people. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, the people that I work with are like, you know, generally healthy, but kind of looking for that next step up. Uh, I, I like working from more of an optimal health kind of standpoint. Um, you know, really looking for more like, okay, how can I perform at my peak? How can I really show up the way I want to and uh, make my brain function well. And so that's what I like working on with people. I, I do see some people that are more, um, you know, kind of working on some specific health issues, but really as a coach, I'm, I'm much more focused on, um, you know, performance coaching and, and optimal health more so than treating or, or doing anything like that. Um, that yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, could, would you be able to maybe just kind of walk me through how the, how that process plays out? You know, somebody reaches out to you and they have a question and then, you, you know, how you, how you take it from, from there to kind of, uh, you, like you said, get them to perform at their peak. And I know you mentioned some of it before by, you know, uh, going through the, the, I guess they send you a sample, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and you kind of go through and analyze that and then report back to them. And then how does that kind of, uh, that, that partnership in, in terms of working with them, uh, play out? Yeah, totally. So, um, it kind of depends on the person. I've got a couple different, uh, package options that I do with people. Um, sometimes, um, you know, I'll just work with people from an informational standpoint where I'm just doing the analysis and we meet, go over it, usually take about 90 minutes, two hours to go through all the information. Um, and you know, that works really well for some people that are kind of self-directed and able to implement that information well on their own and aren't looking necessary for kind of that ongoing support. But then I also work with some people, um, you know, in a, in a coaching capacity where we do the analysis and then we do monthly check-ins and I'm kind of continuing to help, you know, you refine the process and, um, see what's working and maybe try something different if it's not exactly what, what you expected and or what I expected and just kind of continue to um, utilize that genetic blueprint as a way to understand how you're reacting to different things. Um, and then, you know, I do some lab testing as well and uh, track some markers over time. Uh, you know, both those options start with a genetic test, like I mentioned. And um, I use, a, I'm affiliated with a company called Apiron, um, which stands for limitless in Greek um, or means limitless in Greek. And uh, we've got our own genetic test that we uh, contract with a private lab to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern with like 23andMe selling people's data and right. a lot of the bigger companies that ba basically their business model is we're going to collect a bunch of people's data and we're going to sell it to pharmaceutical companies and the people that are giving us their data, they, they're not getting any profit from it. Uh, and they're not getting any value from it. So um, we've made it so you can bypass that and you own your data and it's really privacy secure. We take a lot of security measures with our tests to make sure that um, you know it doesn't yeah. happen in the wrong hand. Well, that's no, that's so. good. Yeah, we don't we don't want the uh, 
the new world order getting control of our genes and making clones of us to take us out like in the new <laughs> Will Smith movie that's coming out. <laughs> right? See, that's funny. Like, uh, that tends to be one of the first things people say is the clone thing. But I, I, I feel I, I have mixed feelings about it because I want some clones in me. I just don't want someone i want clones that can like do the laundry and you know do the dishes right and stuff. yeah i know my god yeah i want clones that can just, like, me, tell me about it like, let me know i need like five clones to just read a bunch of books for me and then give me the the cliff notes and the summaries of that uh -huh. that would be great um well that'd be great yeah do, do you see like common themes when when people are submitting their their samples to you for analysis um are, are there certain kinds of uh i guess what what would you call them like variants or or maybe like dysfunctions that uh that are being uh shown in in the genes is there is there like a common sort of grouping that that you've identified that says oh well clearly a lot of people are coming to me and you know this particular gene is is functioning in, in you know in a way that's not serving them and and then this protocol will will match for them is there like a yeah sort of a common thread there yeah and and um i do but i, I want to kind of tease out some nuance there um, in terms of what you're describing earlier about things not being black and white um, and, you know, just kind of give, give your listeners more of an idea of how I look at this. Cause I think it's helpful because I think there's a lot of miss um, kind of misunderstanding of how to look at genetics sure. um, where a lot of people will look at a variant and say, okay, that's a mutation that's bad or it's, it's causing dysfunction here. Um, but for the most part, when you look at these things and take like a bigger evolutionary context um, again, like most of these things are just responses to different environments over time. And because we're in, you know, a different environment or we're not living in the same place that our, our ancestors lived in, um, we're seeing more mismatch with environments. So uh, it's less about like looking at a gene and saying, okay, this thing is dysfunctional. It's more about saying, okay, this gene is not functioning well in this particular environment with this particular food or, or light or, or, you know, stress or whatever. Um, how can we match it up? And exactly like you said, like matched up to a different pro protocol. So I kind of want to soften, I guess, the the notion that there's dysfunctional genes. Uh, and, and, you know, in very rare cases, like of genetic disease, there certainly are. I don't want to discount that. But, um, you know, that's something totally different than what I'm working with. And uh, let's see, the other question that you had there. Uh, refresh my memory. I kind of lost my track. Uh, I think you might answer that. Well, I was just talking about like I guess the common themes that show up from from people. Yeah, it seems oh, like it's kind of environmental. Right. Is that right? Or yeah, well, in, in terms of common themes, I will see uh, certain genes that, and you kind of know it based on the population frequency. So you know, within you know the the population, you know what the distribution of what they call them alleles, you know, these different um, letter combinations of the genes are. So, you know, say um, someone in the in the whole population, uh, I'm thinking about this gene called FAAH. Uh, this is a gene in the endocannabinoid system. And actually, you know, I'm going to go ahead and pull up the exact um, variant here uh, in SNPedia. SNPedia is one of the, so I can tell you exactly what the distribution is. Um, Would you say that was Snippedia? Yeah, S N P E D I A. Um, it's kind of a good repository. Um, so oh, let's cool. see. Yeah, so in people of European descent, uh, you got about uh, sixty percent of people with a CC variant in this one variant that I'm thinking of, and about um, thirty-two percent 
have the AC version and uh, about 4% have the AA version. Actually, that's a little closer than what I was thinking. Um, but uh, what I see is I see about 90% of people in, that I work with have a CC variant. I don't know why that is. You know, it, a lot of this has to do with, with stress management. Um, the, the endocannabinoid system is pretty involved in, in stress management. And this gene uh, variant tends to code for uh, lower levels of your own uh, cannabinoids that you make, uh, your levels of anandamide. This is the one that activates the cannabinoid one receptor. Um, so this basically what I'm seeing is, is a higher percentage of people coming to me because they're having issues, you know, and I can't isolate it at all just to one gene, but it's a pattern that I see. And so I'll see this with other gene variants um, where there's a higher percentage of people that have um, issues with inflammation because of certain gene variants that are coming for help. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, and you, yeah, you brought up endocannabinoid again, which reminded me, uh, I kind of want to maybe circle back to that because I have a question. It's, it's kind of fascinating to me that we have this system in our body. Uh, you know, it kind of makes me think that like we've evolved, uh, co-evolved consuming cannabis. Is that, is that fairly accurate to, to say? Um, not necessarily. I mean, you, you got to think of it more as we both have a common ancestor, both us and the cannabis plant. Um, like if, if like the way that we've evolved over time, uh, we've conserved those cannabinoid receptors because they work really well. Um, and yeah, we've probably been consuming cannabis because it works, right? Like for forever, right? Because we have that same system in the body, and and there's, uh, you know, there's homology or there, there's similar fu- uh, structure there that the chemicals in the cannabis plant can interact with their body. Um, but it but actually serves a, a really important regulatory role in the human body, and we're really just beginning to to understand, you know, the the depth of it. I mean almost every single cell in the human body has cannabinoid receptors. It's like super ubiquitous. Wow. Um, and we're finding that all of these other systems in the body, um, dopamine, serotonin, opiate receptors, um, immune cells, all these things respond to cannabinoids where cannabinoids kind of act as this um, underlying layer of influence. Um, and so this is, I, th- I think to some degree why you see, uh, people saying that CBD is helpful for so many different things, mm-hmm. and you know it's a, it's a little bit unpredictable, uh, and I think that's partially because people's endocannabinoid systems are are different um, and wired differently, and uh, we're just kind of beginning to touch the surface of of how to predict that and understand it. I mean, it's really really complicated. Yeah, um, yeah, we're 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 beginning to scratch the surface with a lot of this stuff and, you know, uh mapping the genome and uh you know, new technologies like like CRISPR, right? Uh there's there's mm-hmm. all this this new information that's coming on and and it's really fascinating to me as as someone who's really way outside of this area uh that that uh I'm glad that you're here to talk about this. What's uh what's like the most exciting thing for you uh right now? Um, some of the most exciting things for me right now are, are a class of compounds called peptides. Uh, and, and peptides really just means a short amino acid sequence. It's like a fragment of a protein. And there's these, um, there's this whole class of compounds that are being researched for, um, 
for longevity and um, you know disease reversal and injury healing, and they're they're really effective because they're basically little tiny portions of molecules that our bodies produce naturally. So they're very low side effect. Uh, they're very targeted to different systems in the body. Um, they're really um, showing some really impressive results in studies. And um, there's some people, you know, really kind of predicting that that class of compounds is going to change a lot of the way that we, we work with disease and um, wellness and, you know, kind of looking at uh, preventative I really don't like the word preventative medicine. I really like the idea of just like function, trying to get yourself to function at a, at a high level. Cause like, yeah, that's going to inherently prevent shit from going wrong. Right. Like, um, it's more of a focus on the now rather than the future, I guess. But, um, yeah, I really think the, the peptide class is, is pretty interesting. Um, and then, you know, mm. just to touch on what you said, like you being kind of more in the psychedelic space and in the world that you, you know, run with, um, there's not a lot of crossover between kind of the biohacking world. There's a little bit um, in the optimal health space, but yeah, I really enjoy kind of bridging those gaps because I think there's actually a lot in common, um, especially around bodily autonomy and uh, autonomy of consciousness and the ability to self-experiment and do things that um, the average person would look at you and go like, why would you want to do that? Right. You know, like there, there's an, an aspect of self-experimentation and breaking through personal boundaries that I think really transcends both of those spaces. Yeah. Um, because like, ultimately, like I got into this more, um, like I, it's more about the mind body connection for me than it is just this, like, I want to have a six pack and like live forever. Like, okay, that sounds fun, I guess, but like, no, I want to, like, like, I want to have a six pack and live forever. Uh, you should tweet that later. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really more about like, um, you know, just making sure my mind is functioning and in, in a way that, you know, when I do psychedelics, like I'm getting the most out of it, right? Like I want to be functioning in a cognitive level that that's high. And, uh, you know, the kind of knowing that I'm, I'm going to be around for a while is, you know, a, a motivating factor. And, um, but yeah, I just think that there's more room for, um, kind of those worlds to, co to kind of commingle a little bit. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I relate to that so much because, I, you know, early on in my psycho nodding career, you know, I would listen to people like Dave Asprey and I would mm -hmm. listen to, you know, I would I would definitely kind of dabble in this sort of biohacking space and and, and you know, take what I thought was good. And, you know, ex I mean, I, I like to experiment. I like to explore and, you know, micro dosing and different kinds of dosages and set and settings and all these sorts of things. It's an experimentation to see what is working for me and you know what might work for me might not work for somebody else but uh totally there's there's uh, you know the, definitely a intersectional uh you know dance happening there I, I i definitely see that and as as this stuff becomes more above ground we can definitely start to explore that you know one of the things that actually i've been uh, doing uh I have, i'm not doing anymore but i was doing uh, ketamine therapy mm -hmm. and you know earlier in the conversation we were talking about you know you how you were very in your mind and me too everything's mind for me well well, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just like Krang from the Ninja Turtles. I'm just this like giant suit lugging a brain around, you know, and the ketamine therapy actually really helped me get in touch with my body and inform, you know, my body through the 
energy or emotion or distress I was feeling caused by the nervous system to then inform the, the brain of like, hey, like, you know, listen to what's going on down here. And uh, yeah, I, I see that that crossover happening, I think, maybe more and more now. Yeah, it's, it's super fascinating how those substances can unlock that sense of somatic, you know, life. Like, I, I've had similar experiences. Um, I, I'd say more so on, on psilocybin for me and MDMA for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. When you were, I'm curious, when you were doing um, uh, ketamine therapy, were, was what, what type of doses were they using? Were you doing like full um, go, being put under or like smaller doses or how did that work for you? Yeah. So I was taking lozenges, uh, of a hundred milligrams and, uh, yeah, it would be like a two hour session. I'd probably start to feel it come on within 15 minutes or so, you know, my mouth would start to get numb. And then I really connect with the, with ketamine as a substance. I feel like I can really paint pictures in that space and kind of personify, uh, emotions that are, that are running through me and then kind of, you know, give names to them and, and really create, uh, a whole kind of visual space uh, uh, under that experience and, and later, you know, process those, those things that then came up. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a, like assisted psychotherapy setting. Yep. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Here in Denver. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Um, yeah. At, yeah. I'm and at, it's, it's okay. just, it's something that, Oh yeah, no, you were saying, no, no, no keep going, please. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just something that I had ignored for so long and I think so many people do. And I think that's what your work is bringing out to the surface as well Is like, Hey, let's like listen to our bodies. Let's listen to this sensory input data. That's, you know, being interpreted through, uh, you know, our bodies and our genes and the numerous ways that it is. And, uh, oftentimes, yeah, we just tend to live in the mind. We're a very mind centric, uh, culture here in the West. Yeah, totally. And I think there's, um, there's a lot of room to like start to pay attention to that feedback loop that can happen, you know, like once you start to know, okay, I might have this tendency, like I have some tendencies in my genes to do this a certain way. Then you test it out, you know, and then you see like, okay, is this true? Is this, um, what happens if I experiment with, you know, doing a diet that has a little bit of a different ratio of foods to other foods and, uh, you know, see what, what happens. And like you're saying, you get that kind of feedback loop, um, of, having an experience where all of a sudden your, your sensory data is being interpreted a little bit differently because you're able to pay attention to it a little bit differently. Um, and I, I think that you can take that, that template uh, that's so prescient and so like uh, obvious sometimes in, in the psychedelic space. Like it's so different that you, you're just like blown open with like, okay, yeah, now I'm aware of this. Uh, you know, I wasn't before. Um, you can take that type of awareness and apply it to so many different other places in your life. Um, and it's like those tiny little things that you're doing throughout the day, um, you know, that I work with people on and like light exposure and food and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, it's not about just doing it for the sake of, of doing it. It's about like, what, what results are you getting from it? And how are you going to actually like, how are you going to see an improvement in your life and your ability to have, you know, more fulfilling relationships or create the art or, you know, cool projects that you're trying to work on. It's like, that's really where I find a lot of value in this stuff. You know? Yes, yes, exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I need that more and more. I keep trying to optimize and optimize because I want, to have this creative output that is magnificent, you know, and if I'm waking up in the morning and I'm a little foggy or if I'm, you know, saying, cause I'm a, definitely a night owl, you know, so I, I tend to kind of turn on at night and 
I, you know, but when I do wake up in the morning, I feel like, oh, well, this is, this is nice. Actually, I do enjoy kind of waking up in, in the morning early and getting this done. But I think that maybe, and this is just my kind of speculation, but the stress that we encounter from our environment, you know, from maybe eating the wrong foods and all these things, it seems like to me that like our body has to expend a lot of energy to, you know, uh, deal with this stress and keep us maybe ping ponging back and forth, uh, in between this like fight or flight response and, you know, this stress response. And it's like, you know, maybe it's like, wow, this is like a lot to handle, but when we can kind of clear that out of the way, that's when we can start to really perform more at, at peak levels. Um, yeah. I, I, what do you think about that? <laughs> oh, I think you're, you're totally spot on and, and you're kind of differentiating here between chronic stress and acute stress. Uh, so if you've got a lot of chronic stressors going on, you know, you're constantly eating the wrong food, you're constantly doing stuff that, you know, is putting your body in a state where it needs to exactly like you said, expend more energy to just deal with this or putting it in a state where it's not able to produce this energy that's sufficient to deal with the demands. Um, you know, that's a, that's a problem and is going to create brain fog and low energy and all that. But in, in the other case of acute stress, like you actually need some acute stress. Like it, it you, they call it you stress is, is a good thing. Like, uh, EU S T R E S S. Um, and in, in rat studies, they've done these studies where they basically, um, you know, have two groups of rats um, where they don't they specifically make it so that they have absolutely zero stress in their life, nothing. Like they're totally taken care of. They got the the penthouse suite. They're they're chilling. And then they have another group of, of rats where they well, there's three groups. One was like under chronic stress and the other one, they had like acute stressors where like they had to, you know, work a little bit for their food or had to do something that was like, um, you know, putting them under a little bit of stress. And what they found was that the, the rats that have acute stress live the longest. The ones that are like, you know, generally have low levels of stress most of the time, but then, you know, it, it'd be like, you know, having to finish a project for a deadline and be like, all right, I'm just going to kick in an overdrive here, or, you know, I'm going to go lift heavy weights for 30 minutes, you know, here and there. Um, that type of stress on the body is actually really good for it. So it's right. sort of like, really setting your body up so that in the most of the time like you don't have that much to deal with and so that when you do encounter something where you need to turn it into high gear like you're ready and you're you're prepared to, to do it you know yeah are you familiar with the the learned helplessness experiment uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, like, where does that fall into in terms of stress? Because that's, I think, measuring unpredictability and stress in, in an environment where there's, you know, I'll just explain it for the, the listeners. Like, uh, the way that I, I heard it was that they had an experiment with two dogs. One was in a room where they both had electrified, uh, electrified floors. And one, they rang a bell and shocked the dog at the same time. And it was consistent throughout the duration of the experiment. The other room where the dog was in was uh, the electrified floor and the bell were random and it would just happen at any time and it was just chaos. And that, you know, obviously the poor dog was, you know, just destroyed from that. And so I'm wondering if you know, we live in this kind of crazy time right now where there's so much exponential change happening and politics and news and all this crazy stuff going on. There's a certain level of like unpredictability. It, what kind of stress is that? Uh, I would say that is chronic stress for sure. 
um, you know, like okay. that, that's going to be, um, and, and the, the learned helplessness stuff, you know, it, it's basically, um, you know, basically give, subjecting something to, to, uh, you know, distressing kind of thing that it can't escape from. And so then they like open the gates and they're like, yeah, you can escape. We're still going to give you this thing. And the animal doesn't think that it can go anywhere. So it's a learn to think that that's its only possible state. And it, it takes down the, the, the degrees of freedom, you know? Um, I think we see that a lot with people who are in states of trauma, you know, who have had significant, and, and you can look at the whole cultural experience right now as a form of trauma, right? Like, right, what you're saying, right. like every, everything is so, um, like a collective trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we are, um, you know, very much as a global and, you know, American society, um, really feeling the um and acting out the the different ways that people you know experience trauma and it's very difficult to parse out but i, I think that there's some really good good analysis of it and from the psychological side um yeah but yeah i think it gives people um less of a ability to look at other alternatives right like i think you see you know you see this a lot in um you know, people that are, that just kind of stick, dig their heels in and say, well, that's the way it is, you know, right. or, or, or this is just how the system is, or there being the sense of, um, you know, an inability to do anything different from a cultural perspective, because we've learned to be helpless. We've learned to have no agency. And I recognize this in myself sometimes, right? Like all, all the time, actually, when there's, um, yeah, I mean, you can look at it with like mass shootings right now. I feel like that's a, a right, giant right. thing that is making people feel like, okay, there's nothing we can do. All we can do is just blame someone and kind of just throw blame no matter who you are, just to someone else that's different from you and your viewpoint. It's like those types of things um, are definitely chronic stressors in terms of societal factors. But I think, yeah, I think you're totally spot on. There's an aspect of learned helplessness where because it's so random – uh, even if you were get, even if you give someone a chance to do something differently, it's like this is so ingrained in, in like this is the way it is that it, it's hard for a lot of people to make that jump when there's a lot of you know trauma being kind of expressed and, and brought up all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a major thing, and and you know you mentioned that you're really working with people who are sort of in, in optimal health and just looking to get to that next peak level um is is this kind of the kind of approach that you're taking is that also things that people are looking at with uh individuals who are suffering from trauma i mean or do you actually encounter individuals suffering from trauma and 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 deal with that as well yeah i I do a little bit i mean i don't directly work with trauma um because i'm not a therapist um i actually am getting a master's in counseling right now uh so but but not a therapist so um but uh yeah i mean a lot of these things are gonna be supportive for anyone that is recovering from trauma uh you look at a lot of the the most kind of recent integrative models looking at all right how can you do therapy with someone how can you support them from um you know a, a nutritional perspective and an environmental perspective all these things uh, are interrelated in terms of creating the conditions for someone to make changes. Um, because, you know, it's not just about, um, just changing things in the mind. 
there's this feedback loop between our neurochemistry and the and thoughts we think and emotions we have. And you can, um, you know, influence both of those sides from either side, right? So you can take a, you can take a drug, you can take a psychiatric drug and in the short term, make someone feel pretty, you know, okay. It's not a great long-term solution, but it, it can change the way people think about things. Um, or vice versa, you can do some, you know, serious internal work and shift the way that your body produces certain neurochemicals. So, you know, looking at this from uh, the perspective of epigenetics, you know, we you can you can do a lot of work um, from other other angles too. You know, not just the therapy side, not just the drug side, but um, you know, like nutrition, sleep, making sure all these other things are, are supportive. Um, and, you know, I, I think that people that are suffering from trauma could use this type of stuff some of the most, you know, the most in terms of setting themselves up for success. And, and personally, I feel like a lot of the um, work that I've done, um, you know, personally on a, on a therapeutic level has been really supported by this. And I, I, I'm, I question whether, um, you know, some of my own internal process would have been possible or um, as fruitful, you know, I mean, you know, if I wasn't doing kind of this whole systems kind of approach to it while I've been in therapy and, you know, working on on things in various ways. You know, I think it just allows for, for neuroplasticity and the mental capacity to like sit with difficult emotions and not run away from them. Like that takes some mental clearance, right? Like you got to have a little bit of, like you're saying, like if your body's expending energy, fighting all these other stressful things, like you don't really have time to, or you don't have the energy and space to focus on the like very specific thing that you want to be thinking about that is stressful, you know? Right. Yeah. And it makes me think that, you know, this is such a useful thing for people to know. And, and really, you know, I kind of, I actually came about sort of experimenting on my own. And my, my story is similar to yours. Actually, I was doing stand up comedy in New York and I got so drained and depressed and, you know, I was out late at night and bad eating habits and drinking all the time. And I'm like, I got to do something different. So I kind of went to psychedelics for, for that and was sort of, you know, biohacking psychedelics in my own way. Uh, and not, not to the degree of the, the systems approach that you're, that you're taking, but you know, in my own way. And, but something had to happen there. There, there was a catalyst there for me to like kind of wake up and realize, Oh, I have a choice. But it seems to me that this kind of information, this kind of approach, super valuable. Like I, I could see this being useful to people and being taught in, in schools. Do you, do you see that kind of this field progressing in that way where we're maybe educating kids early on about how they can take control of their biology and, and make changes? Oh, ideally. I mean, I think there's a big uphill battle to, to get that into schools. But I mean, you know, you, you are seeing, you know, meditation being brought into schools here and there. And I mean, yeah, I think if you can- Actually, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. When I was saying there's no one against meditation, I actually remember seeing some people posting on Facebook because- Whenever you think no one's disagreeing, just go check the comments section, right? Right. There's people are like, well, this isn't useful. They should be studying and, you know, they, they're going to sit there in silence. They need to be learning math or whatever. And it's like, okay, all right. Well, but clearly we're not, maybe we're not ready for this conversation on a mass societal level yet. I don't know. Yeah. And then you still get some of the, you know, evangelicals thinking that meditation is, is something to do with the devil. You it's the devil's work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. 
Well, listen, we're we're heading up here now uh, towards the end of the show, and I was just wondering maybe if we can get into something that I that uh, I find to be pretty interesting with your background as a musician. Um, first of all, are you do you still practice music? Do you use music in any of the sort of healing modalities in which you're prescribing or for yourself? Because uh, I I've definitely been experiencing that recently. I mean, I use binaural beats. Uh, someone I know runs these gong bath ceremonies. Is is there a, a capacity to that in, in what you're doing? Yeah, totally. So I still make music. Um, I produce electronic music um, under the pseudonym Few Texture. Um, and oh, so cool. yeah, I'm on SoundCloud and all the things released. Oh, nice. Uh, I'll have to put those for, uh, links in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, my music's all available online. Um, so yeah, I still play shows here and there. And I mean, I'm perpetually driven by, uh, dance and sound and it's, you know, kind of my own form of, uh, I don't know, it's a, definitely a type of weird meditation for me going and seeing live music. So, um, I, I do that personally. And then I also, you know, I'm glad to hear you're using binaural beats. I actually have a, a company called inner depth audio, um, that I have some, uh, binaural and isochronic tones and that kind of stuff that, um, I have as well. Yeah. Maybe um, we should talk about, so, yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, like, oh, it seems like you're doing everything. Like, is there anything that you're not doing? Like, <laughs> uh, there's plenty <laughs> I'm not doing. I, it, it's like, uh, I, I just get really interested in certain things, you know, and, and, um, just kind of follow the curiosity. I mean, I, I've been into binaural beats since I was like 15 or so. So it's been like a longstanding just interest, I guess. Um, I guess when I've, you know, it, it looks like a lot when um, it builds up over time. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I mean, these are all real, every facet of your work and all the things that you're talking about, super, super important to, you know, performing at, at, at a peak level, optimizing health, you know, and nothing exists in, in a vacuum. The, all these things, you know, your your genes, your, your, your ability, your cognitive processes, you know, the exercise, sound, dance, right? Sometimes you got to go out light a fire, get naked, dance around it, beat a drum, whatever you got to do to stay healthy and connected to the world, go to go to sleep without this light pollution and the blue light and all that stuff. So there's, there's, there's this interconnectedness with everything. It's not this one singular, uh, okay, well just here, take this pill, you know? Right. Oh yeah, yeah. totally. And uh, get, getting naked and dancing around a fire is probably like top of my list of things that everyone should be doing at some, you know, here and there. Yeah. Um, See, there you go. That's, that's what, that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. And awesome. I, I think there's, I think there's, you know, a lot of room to like, uh, kind of bridge that sort of primal energy expression with, you know, the kind of cutting edge biotech stuff like peptides you know like why not both why not both it's not psychedelics like all like you said you can't isolate anything it's all helpful so right um you know it's i feel like there's a lot of uh but my favorite people are kind of the ones that have gotten past those personal biases around like everything needs to be natural and from the earth or like science is the only answer you know it's like there, there's a lot of gray area in there where you can you can get a lot of value from from trying different stuff out and putting yourself in different mindset. Yeah, that's right. Yes, definitely. Swim in, swim in the gray, explore, see what's down there. Mm -hmm. uh, awesome. I just downloaded actually because I, I, I saw on your website, I was like, oh, this is right. This is for me. 
top 10 biohacks for late night creatives. So I just, I just downloaded that. I'm, I'm psyched awesome. to, to read it because that's what I do. I stay up late at night and you know, my girlfriend's like, what the hell are you doing? It's three in the morning. I'm like, I'm working on a manifest. I mean, I'm doing a podcast <laughs> and uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, awesome stuff, David. Thank you so much for, for joining. And, uh, for people that want more information, go to David, uh, David Kranstock. Is that the website? DavidKranz.com. It's uh, David Dash Kranz with a little uh, hyphen David, in there. David uh, so. Kranz.com. Anything else? Anything else that you got going on that you're working on? Excited to share, or where you should direct people to to find out more about your work? Um, no, I'd say go to David Kranz.com, and uh, you know, if anyone's interested in uh, doing a free 30 minute consultation, want to know if I can help you with uh, something you're specifically looking for with um, genetic testing or have more energy and you know weight loss, whatever it is, um, we can have a conversation and, and see if um, you know what I've got can help you out. Um, other than that, um, yeah, uh, for the most part. I don't know. I do have some cool projects, but I'm not quite ready to talk to about them yet. So maybe there's another episode in the future sometime. Um, yeah, actually yeah. Think, I actually think that um, your audience would appreciate it. I just can't quite talk about it. Oh, them. man. Building suspense. Perfect, perfect way to end an, an episode. <laughs> Stay tuned next time, folks. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. I, I, may, I might be giving you a call myself soon. So, yeah, guys, go go to david com. Check it out. Awesome stuff. Great conversation. I learned a ton and I can't wait to learn more. So, thanks again, David. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Hope you guys like these podcasts and enjoy them. And if you do, please spread the podcast, share it, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker, tell a friend, tell a cat, tell a mouse, tell a dog, tell an ant, tell a firefly, tell whoever you tell, share it, spread it, like it, all that good stuff. If you if you really love the show, you want to go a step further, you really want to help us out, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts um, and go to patreon.com patreon slash mike brank and um, patreon.com slash mike brank and you can donate as little as a dollar a month two dollars a month whatever you want help support the show that way as well but remember i love you guys no matter what you do i just love that you tune in and you enjoy these podcasts message me i like hearing feedback get in touch with me on instagram mikeadelic podcast mike brank on facebook as well and um Thanks to our sponsor, CBD. Hemp Bombs. Uh, if you go want. to hempbombs.com and get 15% off all your CBD needs, I guess. And uh, just enter the code MIKE15 at checkout. But thank you once again to everybody. Thanks to Danny Barnett and Galaxia for the music, the intro, and the outro. I love you all. Peace. <laughs>